Hello and welcome to today's episode of the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help people like you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. Why is this what we're talking about? Because I'm on this same journey with you right now and I'm sharing with you everything that I'm learning from these incredible guests that are coming on the show. And I just want to say, first of all, if this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome. Super excited to have you here. If you're returning... Welcome back because I really do appreciate you for showing up every single week and I don't get sick of saying it because I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And this week is a exciting episode because we get to talk to another Olympian. Today's guest is Noelle Pikus Pace. Noelle is a two-time Olympian, 2014 Olympic silver medalist, 26-time World Cup medalist, and two-time world champion all in the sport of skeleton. And if you haven't heard of what skeleton is, we will dive into that, Uh, but you may be familiar with it. It's a crazy sport, and I was so much fun doing research for this episode because I realized how ridiculous and cool this sport is. So uh, Noelle is originally from Utah. She's the youngest of eight children, and she and her husband, Jansen, have four children. Today, Noelle is a public speaker that has captivated audiences at hundreds of corporate events and conferences with her charisma, high energy, and deeply moving stories. And as always, I want you to look out for three specific things from this episode. Number one, what Noel did to win the best Olympic moment from the 2014 Sochi Olympic Winter Games. And there's a really good chance if you were watching these games, you'll remember what this moment was. But after this conversation, you'll see why what happened has so much more meaning than what you actually saw on TV. Number two, how in 2005, Noel was ranked number one in the world in the sport of skeleton, was 114 days away from competing in the 2006 Winter Games when she had a freak accident and got hit by a bobsled going 70 miles per hour and had to overcome watching her Olympic dream that she had sacrificed so much for get absolutely shattered and how she recovered from that. And number three, how Noelle overcame another massive obstacle in her life when she had a miscarriage and how her husband helped her to get out of that depression by encouraging her to compete again for the 2014 Olympic Games. But this time, instead of traveling by herself and being away for six months out of the year to travel together with her entire family as she trained. So we'll talk a little bit about how she was able to manage that entire thing. And I'll just say personally, after getting to hang out with Noelle for the time that we recorded this episode, she is a rock star. She has a huge heart. She's got strong faith and she's got incredibly positive energy and vibes as you'll hear on this episode. And she's overcome some massive obstacles if you haven't already been able to tell from what I shared. And she did that all in pursuit of massive dreams. And I know that you'll learn a ton from her in this episode. And I also want to give a shout out to Spencer Chamberlain, who uh, actually introduced me to Noelle. So Spencer, I know you listen every once in a while. So thank you. I know you went to high school with Noelle, so that was really cool that you made this introduction. And then also, thank you for this week's pre-show listener shout-out, which goes to Archers75, who left review on Apple Podcasts saying, delivering the value bombs. You'll find golden nuggets here that you won't get elsewhere. That's down to two things. One, Brandon's commitment to his mission of showing you that you don't have to sacrifice your life and health to win at business. And number two, the research and preparation Brandon undertakes to make sure that he gets the best out of every guest for his audience. It makes all the difference. As a guest on the show, I was impressed by his passion and the quality of his questions questions. If you want insight, ideas, and actionable tips that you can use to move closer in your business and life goals, then you'll love this show. So thank you, Sarah Archer. Uh, I'm assuming that's that's Sarah Archer because it's Archer75, who is episode number 27 of the podcast. If you want to listen to Sarah, where we talk about how she was able to leverage her insights of being a stand-up comedian and a playwright to tell more effective stories and how you can do the same to build stronger relationships with your clients. Also, one final thing before we dive into the interview, if you are a returning listener, I have a favor to ask of you, and that is if you haven't left a review yet, please do so. Not only does it make my day, but it also helps other people to discover the show 
And I also give a little bit of a goodie if you decide to leave that review and give an honest review. So all the details on how to do that can be found at sevenfiguremillennials.com slash review. That's the number seven, F-I-G-U-R-E, M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L-S.com slash review. Or you can also go to ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM. But whether you choose to do that or not, I appreciate you for being here. And please enjoy this incredible conversation with Noel Pikes-Pace. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Noel, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here today. I am so excited to be here. Thanks, Brandon. Yes, this is going to be a blast. And it was funny because I always, you know, people just heard your bio, and I was thinking, I was like, should I give some context as to what Skeleton is before, like in the bio? But I'm like, that'd be the stupidest thing when I could have like a two-time Olympian describe it. So there's tons of stories we're going to dive into, and I just want to get everyone on the same page before we hear all this crazy stuff. So maybe just start off with the basics. Can you just tell us a little bit about what Skeleton is so we're all on the same page before we dive in? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So Skeleton, I think the best way to describe it is just an adrenaline junkie sport where you run, you sprint 40 meters as fast as you can, and you dive headfirst onto a little cookie sheet. <laughs> it like literally looks like a cookie sheet that you put in the oven and you dive headfirst onto this and you go down headfirst on your stomach down a bobsleigh track. And if you don't know what bobsleigh track is, it's an icy track in the middle of winter. It's about a mile long and we reach speeds of 90 miles an hour with our chins less than an inch off of the ice. It is a thrill. It's so much fun. You always want to go faster. I think everybody should try it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, ever since I've started doing all this research, it's on my bucket list now. I know you're big into bucket lists, so I'll have to find out a way to make that happen eventually. And another thing I saw on the research, I just thought this was cool. You you said in your book, each curve puts two to three pressures against your bodies, up to six G's pushing, pushing against you. And I just did some research just so that people understand what six G's is. Cause I can't even really imagine that. And I looked it up. So for anybody that is familiar with top fuel dragster racing, they go from zero to 99 miles per hour in 0.86 seconds. And that has an acceleration of 5.3 G's. So if you can imagine a car going from zero to 99 in 0.86 seconds, the, the amount of force that you feel, you actually feel a little bit more than that in these crazy turns that you're taking. So man, so, so everybody has a high overview of what this is. They can kind of imagine it, but I thought a cool way to start would be to give some some people an example of what it's like to actually go down and have this experience. And in your book, you talk about the most dangerous skeleton track in the world. um, And it's in Germany, if I remember correctly. So I would love for you to tell this story just so that people can get a little glimpse about what it's like to actually experience something like this. Yeah, absolutely. So one of one of the most dangerous tracks in the world is on the eastern side of Germany. It's called Altenburg, Germany. And before you go to this track, I just I just remember my first time going here as a rookie. So like I was just a newbie. I was a new athlete in the sport of skeleton. I didn't really know um, the dangers ahead. You know, when we're we're young, we're naive. We're, we're thinking, okay, yeah, I can do anything. I can, you know, this will be easy. And I remember as we got closer to this track, as we flew over 
over to Germany from, from the U S um, I remember one by one, my teammates started coming up to me and saying, Hey, Noel, this track is unlike any other track in the world. It is extremely dangerous. Be sure to steer. So I should have mentioned that as well. We do steer our skeleton sled. So if it, for those, you know, if, if you, as a viewer have seen skeleton, um, it kind of looks like we just lay there on our stomachs and just kind of hope to get down the fastest. <laughs> and <laughs> I know you maybe thought that Brandon, um, but we don't, we actually steer, we study it out, uh, hours and hours go into studying it, prepping our equipment and, um, knowing which curve lies ahead. And so I remember I had studied this track as best I could knowing which way to go. We steer using our opposite, opposite shoulder, opposite knee, and we apply pressure to our skeleton sled the entire way down a mile long track steering in and out every inch of the way down. And if we're off by an inch, that could be the difference between making it down safely and, and not. And you're, when you're going 90 miles an hour and an inch flies by, imagine driving on the freeway and having to keep track of every single inch of space before you. It's It can be really uh, exhilarating and really challenging at the same time. But I remember showing up to this track in Altenburg, Germany, and um, one by one, my teammates <clears throat> kept coming up to me saying, Noel, you've got to watch out for corner four. You need to steer down with your shoulder, right shoulder, up with your left shoulder, down with your right shoulder or you're going to flip over and you're going to crash. And then my other teammate would come up to me and be like, no, it's not corner four. It's corner nine. You need to be worried about corner nine. You need to steer down. And then you need to steer up. You need to steer down. No, it's not corner nine. It's corner 10. It's corner 12. And everybody was just saying how dangerous this track was. There was danger in every corner, like literally. And so I remember as I went down this track going, rising and falling with all these pressures, I flipped over once. And then I flipped over again. I kept flipping myself back over along the way, um, flipping onto my back. And it's a 65 pound sled that pins us to the ground. So, so it's pretty heavy. Um, when you flip onto the back, onto your back and your skeleton sled is on top of you. But I remember coming into this massive corner called Kreisel. It's a circle, a full 360 degree turn in one of these um, corners in Altenburg, Germany. And I remember rising and falling, going up and down and up and down. And I lost track of where I was. My helmet was suctioned to the ice because of that G pressure. As you mentioned, Brandon, it just suctions your whole body to the ice when there's that much speed and that much force. And all I could see was the white ice flying by my face, flying by my visor and my helmet. And I didn't know where I was. I lost track of where I was. And as I came towards the end of this corner, I remember straining against that pressure, trying to push my head, like trying to pull my head up off the ice. And I could see the roof, this wooden, you know, this wooden sheet of, of, of um, wood that was keeping us in the track. It's to keep you in. And I remember it was coming closer and closer to me, or I was getting closer and closer to it rather. And as I came closer and closer, I just remember having this distinct thought, don't hit the roof, don't hit the roof. And I was flying towards it. And I remember just nailing that piece of wood as I came towards that exit of this fine, of this corner, it was corner 10 out of 19 corners. So this was only like halfway down, just over halfway down this track. And I came up at 70 miles an hour and just nailed the top of this wood, um, this wooden plank. And I went flying through the air with this 65 pound sled holding tight to that. And it came crashing down on top of me and it knocked the wind out of me. And I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. My run was done. And I remember from that experience, just learning the importance of where you look is where you go. 
in life and whether it's in sports, you know, in sports, it's a, it's a very literal analogy where, you know, you're mountain biking, you look at a rock, you're going to hit the rock in, in skeleton. You look at the roof, you, you're going to hit the roof. But in life, it, it really struck me that where I'm looking is where I'm going to go each and every day. Um, and so I started focusing more on the habits that I had the, these, you know, maybe subconscious habits that I was doing in my life and start saying, I want to be more intentional with my life. How can I change and improve each and every day? What goals can I set for myself so that I can intentionally cross the finish line that I want to cross in my life? Um, because where we look every single day is where, where we go. Mm. There's so much there. And I love how you packed that up. And I, I, in preparation for this, I also found, I don't think it was you, but I found like a 360 view video of somebody that had like a camera on their helmet. So I'll make sure to link that up in the show notes, just because it's, it's one thing to see from an aerial perspective, someone zooming down a track, but it was nothing. It was like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. And I love the, where you look is where you go. That is so, so applicable. I wanted to, uh, let me let me just ask this just point blank. Can you can you tell us about the the Krakenwagen and 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 what the, the very first word was that you loved, learned in German and why it was important? Oh my goodness! So in this same experience, so this was my my first time traveling overseas for an for a skeleton competition, and I remember when uh, before taking this ride down this skeleton track, Chris, my teammate, very I remember this distinctly. He came running up to me and he said, "Hey, Noel, beware of corner four. Beware of corner nine. Beware." of corner 10, which is ultimately the one that I flipped and crashed and ended up ending my run on. And he said, but no matter what you do, do not get in the Kronkenwagen. <laughs> and I was like, what? I'm like, what does that mean? And that was literally the first German word that I ever learned. And Kronkenwagen for free listening, it means ambulance. Like it means ambulance. That was the first German word. It wasn't like you know, where's the bathroom or where's the airplane? Like it was, you know, nine crunk and bunk, no ambulance. And he's like, wait, you can't get into the ambulance here. Like it, they don't even have a hospital. It's not, it's not a normal hospital. It's a vet. They, it, this is Eastern Germany. They only have like, they're treating you next to the dogs and the horses and the pigs. And they've got these like big needles. And they're like, he's like, just do not get in the crunk and bunk. So ultimately when I crashed, when I hit the roof, um, I still remember hearing the sirens coming because one by one before me, these athletes were ending up in the ambulance. It was a very, very scary day to be sliding. One by one, a girl from, from Japan went to the, the hospital. And, and then a girl from Canada, the world champion from Canada, flipped and crashed right before I headed down this track. So my heart was just racing. And she ended up in the Kronkenwagen. And Chris was like, don't get in the Kronkenwagen. Don't get in the Kronkenwagen. And when I crashed and was laying there on the ice, and my sled was like going down the track. And I stopped and I was bleeding. I just remember standing up as those paramedics came like rushing towards me and all I could say was nine Kronkenwagen <laughs> I would love to be a spectator in that vet area like just full of like pigs and and horses and skeleton oh racers <laughs> the That's stories awesome. we tell the stories we tell <laughs> yeah love that okay so I can only imagine what people are thinking right now and they're like how the heck does someone get into something like this and so um, I, I don't, I mean, we could go into figuring out the exact steps, but there's another talk that you gave and I watched the intro and I love the intro because I think this gives insight as to who you were naturally and how it like skeleton just was your natural progression. So would you mind telling us a little bit about the story about age five and when you wanted to beat your siblings going down uh, a mountain and skiing? <laughs> I, I think that's a <laughs> cute story to set us up for why, why you ended up going down this path. Oh, that's awesome. That's a good story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that one, um, I actually grew up the youngest of eight kids. 
Um, so I was, I mean, it was really like survival mode all the time. I'm telling you what, it, for those of you, know, for, if you're a youngest in the family, you know what I'm talking about. Cause <laughs> I think all of the days of being spoiled, we do get spoiled, but I think that's just the reward for living through those rough days. <laughs> so, um, when I was younger, my family, we were big into skiing, snow skiing. Um, uh, my dad and my mom and dad would always, they would, they would buy us like season passes. We, I grew up in Utah, which is known for its snow. The actual theme, like on our license plates says greatest snow on earth. Uh, it's just really good. It's really good. Dry powder. Um, great to ski in. And I remember when I was younger, my dad would go and wax all of my siblings' skis uh, for the next day of skiing. And this is probably when I was about five years old. Uh, I remember watching him wax their skis, waxing on, wax off, you know, kind of like wax on, wax Mr. off. Mr. Miyagi. And, <laughs> yes, Mr. Miyagi, you caught that, yes. And so he would sit there and wax. And I, I remember asking him, why are you doing that? And he said, this makes the skis go really fast. It makes it so that it can slip on the, on the snow so you can go faster. And I remember have, asking him to do my own skis when I was about five years old. And he said, no, 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 no. You need to learn how to, how to ski safely first. You know, you've got to, you know, sn snow plow down the mountain, which means that you're going to put your, your feet kind of your toes point together and you go down in like a pizza, right? They call it pizza because your toes are pointing towards each other and your skis kind of make a pizza slice um, shape. And so I remember just being kind of frustrated as a five-year-old thinking, I want to go fast. Like, why are you not, why are you not waxing my skis? I remember sneaking down into my basement, finding the wax that my dad had used after he put away all the supplies, getting ready for the day of skiing for the next day and sneaking the wax out. And I pulled out my skis, my little skis, and I just took the wax. And I know I did it. I, I'm sure I did it like so wrong. But I just remember like taking this <laughs> wax and just like putting it all over the bottoms of my skis and then putting them back like exactly where they were to, to load up into the car so that nobody would notice. And the next day, as everybody's going down the mountain, I remember going up to the top of this is the bunny hill, like the smaller hill, the green, it's like a, it's like the easier hills. Right. And I remember just being like, why are my siblings going on the hard things? Like, why can't I go on a harder run? And I'm having to start here. And as I got off the ski lift, my dad was like, okay, Noel, now let's go nice and slow. Remember the pizza. Remember to point your toes together and make that little pizza shape with your feet and your skis. And I was like, Oh no, that, that's not going to happen. And I just went completely <laughs> straight down the hill. I put my, my, put my skis like French fries. That means they're like parallel together and just full bore. I wanted to go as fast as I could. And I flew down that hill. And I remember my mom, she didn't, she didn't really care to ski. She's, she'd get too cold. And so she would sit in the, in the lodge and just like sit up at the top and watch us. And she's like, no, no. Like I remember her, I still remember like standing up there, like waving her arms, like slow down, slow down. And I was just flying down the side of the mountain. And I think that's where my need for speed began. I think I was just always wanting to learn, wanting to be competitive, you know, um, wanting to keep up with my siblings. And um, I think that's really where it, where it all began was at a really young age. Yes, the the day the speed demon was born. <laughs> I love that. I love how you, I mean, you obviously you translated it to a different sport, but like it, it sounds, it seems like that even at age five, the wanting to go faster and faster was something that was present. So love that story. And I want to skip ahead uh, a few years, and I I know that um, kind of almost early on in your career, you ended up winning the Skeleton World Cup overall title in two thousand four, two thousand five. So you were ranked first in the world. 
and uh, the Olympics was 114 days away. So like, you know, things were really, really exciting. Uh, but then something happened. Uh, would you mind, would you mind sharing <laughs> what, what happened uh, 114 days right before the Olympics? Yeah, for sure. That was a, that was a, a, a rough day that day. Um, so I was ranked first in the world going into the 2006 Olympic games in Torino, Italy. And I was so excited. Like I, I had never been to the Olympics before, but I could just taste it. Like I wanted to become an Olympian so badly. Um, I'd been married for about four years at this point. And everything we did was, was to get me to this goal. Like to, I can't explain to you the sacrifice that goes into an Olympic dream but it's everything. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's everything you do, everything you think about, everything you eat, everything you work on, everything, everything goes into this Olympic dream, the sacrifice, the finances, um, the time away from loved ones. There's just so much that goes into, it. I can't even put it into words, but I was finally on my way. Uh, this was the, the spring of, of 2005. I, I became the first American woman to win the overall world cup title. And what that means is that I won more races than any other individual on the World Cup team. So I was ranked first. So I had that yellow jersey, you know, that everybody's coveting. Everybody wants to wear that yellow jersey. And um, I was so excited. My my parents had bought tickets for Italy. Um, my, my husband had, my siblings, they had plane tickets. They had hotel reservations. They had event tickets. You have to buy them that far in advance or else, or else you're going to be out of luck. So, um, but for us, we don't know who's on the team on an Olympic team. It's kind of crazy, but we don't find out who's on our Olympic team until about a month before the Olympics. So your family all have to buy the tickets, even though you're not sure you're going to even be going at our Olympic trials. So this is one of the first steps to be able to qualify for those Olympic games in Trino, Italy in 2006 at our Olympic trials, October, 2005, I had just finished a practice run going down on my skeleton sled, flying down the mountain. And, um, I was doing quite well. I, I was very happy with my times. My, I was where I wanted to be mentally, which is one of the toughest things. I was where I wanted to be physically, um, spiritually, emotionally. Like I just felt like it was all falling into place. Like the, you know, just like everything was going well, everything was going right. And I remember I had just finished a training run down the track and, um, I waited for my teammates to come down this icy, icy track. And one by one, they came, um, Leanne came down on her sled and then Courtney and then Katie. Um, and one by one they came down and as we sat there waiting for a flat. So the way that it works with skeleton is we slide down the mountain and we wait on a finishing dock for a flatbed truck to come down the mountain back up. And then we climb up some stairs and then take our sleds. Our sleds, like I said, are 65 pounds. So we don't want to walk up the mountain. That's going to take forever. We actually get into a flatbed truck and that truck will just take us back up to the top of the track. This is how it's done in every track in the world. And so we got, you know, we wait for this truck to come down. And as we were sitting there waiting for this flatbed truck to come, we were talking about how we had done for the day. And as we were sitting there talking, we heard a really loud rumbling noise coming from the finish line, which was probably, it was probably like about 70 or 80 meters away from us. And I remember just immediately turning, stopping our conversation and turning to look over my right shoulder towards the finish line. And I saw um, a bobsled 
a four man, 15, 1600 pound bobsled coming flying towards us. Uh, and it was coming. Yeah. Like I said, 60, probably 60 or 70 miles an hour and they weren't slowing down. And so immediately I just remember jumping up to my feet to get out of the way of this oncoming bobsled. But my teammates, my four teammates were in front of me boxing me in and I couldn't, I couldn't bail out. So I had uh, the staircase that we would climb up and to get into this flatbed truck was right behind me. So I actually had to take a step past to, to get out of the way of this staircase that was behind me. And as I planted my right foot to take a step, to jump out of the way of this oncoming bobsled, as my teammates were crowded in front of me and jumping out of the way, um, left and right, as I planted my right foot, this bobsled came and hit me from behind. And I remember flying through the air. I did a full complete flip through the air and I landed about 25 or 30 feet away. And immediately I tried to jump up to my feet to see what had just happened. And I fell back to the ground. And I remember, I still remember, I remember so clearly the screams and the chaos and the commotion as I looked towards this finishing dock where I just was just a moment ago. I was just sitting there. I was just laughing. I was just having a good time with my, my teammates. And I looked over there and I could see that my teammates were screaming and crying and they were scrambling around. And I could see that the bobsled had flown out of the end of the track onto the pavement, onto the road where the flatbed truck was about to back in. And it was flying up the road. My sled was actually stuck underneath it. And as I tried to jump up to go see what had just happened, I fell back to the ground again. And I remember in that moment, just thinking, why can't I run over there? What's going on? And I looked down at, at my legs, why I couldn't run over there. And I could see that my bones were sticking out of my right leg. So my, like my, my heel was actually like literally touching my calf. And I remember in that moment, I, it didn't hit me then, you know, Brandon, it didn't hit me that the, the significance of this injury, I was still, I was still ready to go. Like I, I had on that yellow Jersey, I was ready to go for this Olympic games. My husband was thousands of miles away and, and here I am lying on the ground and I didn't know what my future held at that moment. I, it really didn't hit me. It truly didn't hit me until I had come out of surgery. I remember going into the hospital. Um, they inserted a titanium rod into my leg. I actually still have that in my leg. And then they put, they had to put screws in and everything. And I remember it wasn't until my hospital room door closed that, that the whole impact of what just happened hit me just even a piece of it. I mean, I, I couldn't comprehend it all in one moment, but a little piece of this thought that my Olympic dream was gone. It hit me and I couldn't take it. I started crying tears started coming down my cheeks. And, and I remember just in that moment, just feeling, feeling sorry for myself, truly feeling sorry for myself, knowing that my teammates, my teammates would go on tomorrow, the next day to go compete for my Olympic spot, to compete for this open spot. And to be honest, that's, this is a, it's a tough place to be in. You have friends on the team, of course, but here's a free open spot now. So people are, are pretty happy that you're gone. There's a lot of people that are cheering, cheering that this just happened. And that yellow Jersey is now gone. So other nations are saying, yes, it's an open spot for a, for a medal. 
And I remember just lying there in my hospital room, feeling sorry for myself. And as these tears started coming down my cheeks, my hospital room door flew open and my surgeon, my orthopedic surgeon came walking in with her clipboard in hand, Dr. Merkonjic. And she came walking in with this clipboard. And I still distinctly remember her looking up at me and seeing these tears coming down my cheeks. And she just looked at me and she said, why are you crying? You have two choices. You can either look back and be upset and angry and frustrated at what just happened to you. Or you can choose to move forward. Your leg is broken and crying's not going to fix it. I remember, I still remember that so distinctly because I just, I don't think I was ready for that kind of conversation yet. I, I really think I just wanted a hug or something, but um, honestly, when she said that it was truth, it, it rang, it rang true to me that here I am in this hospital room and nobody is going to pick me up off of this hospital bed. Nobody is going to take that next step for me, except for me, unless I take this, take this upon myself to say, what, where do I want to go from here? You know, before, before this accident had happened, I had actually attended a leadership summit with um, a handful of Olympic hopefuls in Colorado Springs. And what we had been asked to do, it was with like Apollo Ono and Lindsey Vaughn, like all these, all those that were expected to go on and, and where I was ranked first in the world, I was invited to this. And we were asked to chart our course. This was before this accident took place the summer before. And I remember like they literally had us take these markers and they had us write out, like map out, draw a picture of how we could go from one step to the next, to the next, to the next, and how it would ultimately lead us to that Olympic podium. And I remember as I drew out my map, mine kind of went like this. It was kind of like a, I, I drew it so that it was a pathway. It almost looked like a sidewalk. And in each one of these little sidewalks that I drew with my markers, I wrote down, okay, first I need to uh, complete my workout each day for each week. And then I had on there, I need to go to my Olympic trials and finish in the top three. I need to go compete on the world cup circuit and I need to finish in the top six, every race I need to go. So I had on there step-by-step exactly what would take me to that Olympic podium and nowhere on my path. Did it say get hit by a bobsled? Like it just wasn't on my agenda, you know, like it just wasn't there (laughs) at all, you know? And, and I knew when this doctor came in and she said, you know, you, you may have had this plan to get you from point A to point B, but now you are on point, you're on point D or maybe even L or M. And now it's your choice. Do you want to continue down and go towards Z where maybe like, maybe I could throw my hands in there and say, man, I tried to go to the Olympics. I don't want to work to come back. This is, I guess that's that. I guess I tried and it's never going to happen again. I could just throw my hands in the air. Or I could say, okay, I completely went off of my course, but now how do I get back on track to get back to to point B? But it's going to be up to me. And it took took five years, five more years for me to get back on that path to come back to the Olympics. And even then I missed out on a medal. And then it took me another four years to end up on the podium. So it wasn't wasn't necessarily the step-by-step perfect imagery of what, what is going to happen, but just recognizing that no matter what your 
circumstances are in life, no matter what you're going through, we are all going through something. The pandemic has thrown a whole wrench in everybody's lives. Every single person in this world has been affected by it, but we always have a choice. Do not blame your circumstances or allow your circumstances to hold you back from reaching your fullest potential. The power is within you to be whatever you want to be and to reach that potential. What a story. That was not only the most powerful story ever. And I, I've, I've heard you tell that story, but I got chills every, every single time, every single time I listened to it. So thank you for sharing that. That is just so incredible. The things that you've had to overcome. And I want to kind of zoom in on this because, you know, you talked about having a decision to make at that moment, you could have actually, you know, moved towards positive and recovery, or you could have kind of just had the decision to just go downhill from there. So Walk us through, if you can remember, I know this might be something hard to remember. What was the day after that? Like, like you wake up, you have this conversation with the doctor. Cause it's like, you know, we can see you on the podium and like, obviously things are covered, but obviously that day after you can have that realization. And then that's the, that's the first day where you actually have to start taking steps. So like, how did you start to get wrap your mind around reconstructing a new reality where you still ended up competing again? Yeah, you know, the day after, and I'd even say the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, it, it's, it was a decision every single day, and it wasn't an easy decision. It was a very hard decision to say, I can either throw my hands in the air and sit here and cry and be depressed in this hospital room, or even once I made it back to my own bed and say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Like there were, there were many days where I just, I had to, I I did whatever it took to put on a smile, put a smile on my face, but, but it was hard. It was hard day in and day out, um, to push through, to try and fight, to make my way back to, to where I wanted to be. Um, so, you know, to say that that one moment changed everything, it did change everything. It changed my perspective, but it still had to be a choice every single day. I couldn't just rely on that decision from that single day of my accident. Um, Every day I had to remind myself that I had a choice because I still remember that day after my leg was not my own. Like I'd look down at my leg with these staples in it and it was swollen like probably three times the size of my my other leg, my left leg. It wasn't my leg. There's no way that could be my leg. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. This isn't my life. Like I could, I could just fall into these thoughts of negativity, of doubt, of fear, of worry, of stress. And then you come back to that story from Altenburg and And if I'm constantly focused on that roof, if I'm constantly focused on my stress and my anxiety and my fear and my worries and my doubts, I will never cross the finish line that I set out to cross. I will always be stuck sitting here looking at that roof and ultimately crashing every single day. Every single day is a choice and it's not easy to to turn those thoughts to thoughts of positivity. How can I help somebody? How can I serve somebody? What's good about today? Mm. Um, I started keeping an attitude of gratitude. I started keeping a gratitude journal and it, and it helped like immensely because I, I, it's easy to get caught up in all the things that are going wrong. All the things that you don't have is as you know, whether it's in, in your work and your family and relationships with finances, you can, you can pull out as many bad things as you want to, or you can choose to see the good and continue to, to push forward to that course that you want to be on and that finish line that you want to cross. Um, I remember keeping an attitude, like keeping a gratitude journal 
helped me a lot writing down 10 things every morning that I was grateful for 10 things every night that I was grateful for. At first, I really, really didn't want to Brandon. At first I was so grumpy and just so miserable. I just didn't want to. Um, but the, the more consistent I became, the more I turned that into a habit, the more that I could see it was lifting me up. And there were still days that I cried. There were still days that I was miserable. There were still days that I was, I was in immense, immense pain, um, from this, from the surgery, I couldn't, I couldn't go to the bathroom. I had to like drag myself there. Cause I, if I, if my, if my, like my leg, if it dropped below elevation, it, it would just pound, it would throb. And the pain was intense. I tried not to take as much medication as possible because I wanted to be able to push myself through. And, and I was in recovery 10 hours a day. I would go into, um, physical therapy for about four hours. And then I'd go home and do about six more hours, whether it was lying flat on my back with a pillowcase over my foot. And I would just try to get my range of motion in my knee back. So I would let my foot slowly drag down a wall and tears would just be streaming down my face. Cause it would hurt so bad. Um, I just remember like so many days. Um, I, I heard a quote recently, and I think this was one other, one other thing that, that helped me. Um, I absolutely love this be the best part of someone else's day. Mm. And as we strive to do that, as we strive to look outside ourselves, I know as I was going through this recovery process, uh, it, the physical side, to be honest, was actually fairly easy for me to do because I knew what it would take to get there. Like if I could just increase my range of motion, it was very quantifiable. I could see the, the numbers. Like I could see that my knee range of motion, my ankle range of motion, it was healing. It was getting better day by day. Maybe I'd take two steps forward and maybe a step back and then take another three steps forward and then another step back, but I could see it physically improving. But the side that nobody else could see was my mental side, you know, and, and that for me was probably the hardest. A lot of times I'd put a smile on my face just to try and show the world that I could, that I was, that I was okay, but I really wasn't for, for many, many days. Um, I missed out on those Olympic games, despite a fight of coming back. I, I went back to compete five weeks later, which doctors were blown away by after having a rod, (laughs) after having a rod in my leg five weeks later, I still had the staples in my leg and everything. I was so determined. I was competing in Eagles, Austria. Um, I finished 19th in that world cup race. And then I went on to Latvia. Um, I finished, I finished eighth in that world cup race. And then I went on to Koenigsee, Germany, a different track in Germany. And I finished top USA competitor finished fifth. And I was just moving up the ranks towards this 2006 Olympic deadline. And I was, I still missed those Olympics, not because I couldn't compete, not because I wasn't physically, emotionally, mentally capable of competing, but because I had missed two races during my recovery time, it it made it so that I couldn't gather points. It was all based on a point system. You have to earn points as an individual each and every race. And there wasn't a waiver to say, Hey, Noelle was injured, like for good reason, like she got hit by a bobsled. So we should just like not count those two races and just, you know, say she did that, you know, or give her those points. And now let's just see how much, how many points she earned in the races she was actually attending. They didn't have a waiver. Now they do. (laughs) So it's good to be a pioneer. You you created the rule. Congratulations, (laughs) man. That. (laughs) Yeah. Just to, just to the, the fact that you were competing five weeks and I know like the doctors initially said that you wouldn't be training for another year or something like that. So just the fact that you've made that quick recovery is absolutely incredible. And that was actually, I'm so glad that you, you pulled out that quote, be the best part of someone else's day, because 
that I actually made a note uh, to, to pull this out because you said in passing before that focusing on serving others was something that helped you really get through it. And I think that that is just, it's a recurring theme that I've heard throughout other guests, but I just think that it's such a beautiful thing is that no matter how much of a, a crazy storm you're going through, there's always an opportunity to actually look outside of yourself. And that's where next levels of growth comes from when you can actually separate yourself from your misery and just focus on supporting someone else. And it actually does something in turn for you. Um, uh, another thing that I, I wanted to point out is just the fact that obviously you talked about stepping up and making sure that you're being positive. Uh, and this is a theme that I've noticed just in your other interviews and the other things, but there was, there was, when I first started researching and I was looking at your, your races, uh, I watched this one run of yours and I, I paused the video right before you set the sled down. Cause I was like, what the heck did it say on her sled? It says it's in. <laughs> So, so hold on. So I'm not going to ruin the punchline, but I, I think this has to do with positivity and, and just really making sure that you're putting a smile on other people's faces. So would you mind sharing what I read, what the heck I read on the bottom of your sled that you took in the Olympics? You know, what's funny is I actually don't even know which one you're talking about because every okay. single world cup, I would write something different. So I just, as you said, Brandon, I, um, every athlete is different. Every athlete needs something, um, to help them to become their best. Some athletes, no matter what sport you're in really need that, like angry music and they need to be pumped up and they need to be really focused and don't talk to me. Don't come in my space. Like, and that works for them. And for others, for myself, um, I really like to just be around people. I like to talk. I like to laugh. I like to joke around. I like to have fun. I've put in all the work in practice. So now today's race day, today's competition day, let's just go out there and see what we can do and give each other high fives and hugs at the end. Cause that's all we got. Right. So, um, the beginning of every world cup race, I would write something different on my sled just cause I wanted to see people smiling and wanted to see people laughing. And so like one of them was, uh, ostriches run 40 miles per hour, like just random facts. <laughs> Like I would just throw in random facts or I would say like, um, it's impossible to lick your elbow. And it would just, I was write it in I Sharpie, like all down, <laughs> all down my sled. And I'd see people like, literally I'd be at the line ready for a world cup competition where most athletes would be like honed in focused. I'm about to go 90 miles an hour. And, um, at that point I just knew, like, I knew what my, I would write down three goals for myself each and every day, every day of practice, every day of competition. I knew what my three very, very intentional goals were each and every day. So as long as I was ready for that, I fall asleep thinking about those three goals. I woke up thinking about these, those three goals. I visualized it a thousand times. I knew exactly what I wanted to do by this point. So when I got to that green line, I could take a breath. I could wave to fans. I could smile. Um, my husband and kids traveled around the world with me for the last two years of my, of my competitions. I just wanted to see laughter. And so I remember seeing when I wrote that one, it's impossible to lick your elbow. I remember seeing people literally like taking their elbow and they're like trying to <laughs> lick it. And it would just make me laugh. I'm like, Oh good. You read it. And and you think it's funny. So that's good. So I just like start laughing and it would kind of alleviate that pressure, alleviate that stress to know that there's more to life than just this task ahead of us. Like if I crash today, then so be it. Like, I'm not going to try to, I'm going to try and get down my fastest, but man, like I'm going to give it my absolute best. And sometimes we just life life's too short to take yourself so seriously. And so for me, if, if I could just like have some smiles along the way, then man, this is going to be a fun ride. Oh man, there, there's so much gold there and there's so much where I want to dig into, but I have a, I have so much that I, else that I want to uh, dig into. So I'm biting my tongue. Cause there's, there's a bunch <laughs> of ways that we can go down with this, but, um, I would love to maybe conclude this section with, with, with talking about your skeleton career. So maybe if we could 
condense this component a little bit because I want to talk about your family life. I want to talk about your relationship with your husband, which is absolutely beautiful and post-Olympic career. So we'll see how much we can squeak in. Okay. But, um, let's, <laughs> if you wouldn't mind kind of filling in the gaps a little bit, because, you know, we eventually saw you on the podium in the 2014 games, uh, but there was, there was a bunch of other trials and tribulations that happened in between that. So would you mind kind of condensing a little bit what happened in 2010 games, uh, an event that happened in 2012, and then what put you on the podium in 2014, if that's a realistic question to ask. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. Brandon, first, I've got to just chime in and just say how awesome you are. Like you really do your research and it's really fun to fun to hear and fun to see and just uh, kudos to you. I just think it's so impressive. So I just have to throw that out there. So thank um, you. <laughs> okay. So 2010. So after I missed uh, the Olympics in 2006, um, it was really, really hard. Uh, it was devastating, obviously with having that broken leg. I came back in 2010, um, after taking a year off, I went on for a master's degree in business administration. I had our first child, a baby girl in 2008, and I went back to compete and I went back to compete in Vancouver. I finished fourth. I missed an Olympic medal. You got it's, this is like the worst position ever. So uh, for you, that's listening do not ever tell an Olympian that second place is the worst position you can ever finish. Cause it is not, it is fourth place, fourth place, gold, silver, bronze, nothing. Okay. So I finished fourth in the 2010 winter Olympic games. And I thought I was done. Like I was ready to be done. I, I missed my daughter's first steps. I missed her first birthday. I missed her first words. I was torn. Like my life was so out of balance. I was, when I was competing, I felt like I needed to be home. When I was at home, I felt like I should be training. I just never felt like I was, um, like, like running my life smoothly. And so, um, after the 2010 winter Olympic games in Vancouver, Canada, I retired, I threw my hands in there and I was like, Oh man, shoot. You know, I'm, I took fourth Dang, I'm done. <laughs> I retired that day. And, um, my, my husband and I, we wanted to have more kids. So, um, I had a little baby boy, Trayson in 2011. And then in 2012, I was pregnant with a little girl and we were thinking of names. We, I still remember we were, we were considering calling her Sh Sh um, Shaylee. And, um, I remember one day, this was in April, waking up and just knowing something was wrong. And, um, I was 18 weeks pregnant and come to find out I was having a miscarriage. So I, I lost that little baby girl and it was devastating. Um, I, I, I can't, I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is to be told by a doctor that they have no answers for you. They don't know. They didn't know why her heart stopped. They, they did all the tests on me. They did all the tests on her and, and her heart had just stopped for no reason. And it was absolutely devastating. And, and to be honest, um, Brandon, I mean, I'm, I'm, I told you before we started this interview that I'm an open book and you can ask me anything, but this experience, and I only share this with the thought that maybe one of your listeners out there, um, that one of you listening uh, may have been through something like this. I, I actually experienced this three different times where I would make it to 17 to 18 weeks pregnant. And we would hear that little baby's heart and we'd know if it was a boy, we knew if it was a girl, um, two times it was a girl, one time was a boy and their hearts just stopped. And I, I remember sitting there with the doctors and they sat me down in this room and they said, you just have to expect that every single time you get pregnant with a child, 
that their heart is going to stop between 17, 18 weeks. We have no answers for you. You're one in a million, you know, you're one in a million, you know, and, and they didn't have answers and they, they, they still don't have answers. And they said, if you, if you can muster going through this again, we, we recommend you just don't get pregnant anymore. You physically, emotionally, it's not worth it. They would tell me it's not worth it. Just stop trying. And, um, now, um, despite their, their, you know, best directives. Uh, my husband and I decided to try yet again, and we were blessed with two little angels. We were blessed with two twin with twin boys, and so um, we have a family of four kids, and they are absolutely incredible. But moving on, I know that was maybe a little more than you bargained for for this question, but that was in 2012, and my whole reason for going back to the 2014 games was because of that miscarriage. I was devastated. I can't, I can't tell you like. I, I fell into depression. I was so sad. I was so hurt. I was so lost because um, I, I had retired from skeleton in 2010 and in 2012, the spring of 2012, having two children already. And um, my husband came up to me and said, you know, Noel, he said, what do you think about going back to compete for the t- 2014 Winter Olympic Games? And I hadn't even I hadn't been on my skeleton sled in two years and I'd been pregnant, you know, twice at this point. And all my, all my teammates had been training, like at the Olympic level in and out. And I was like, ah, oh, man, I, there's no way I would want to leave you guys. There's no way I could do that. And he knew that. And he said, no, no, no. What if we could do this as a family? What if we could travel together as a family? You never have to say goodbye at an airport. I hated airports. Like I hated airports because it just, it was a sign that I was leaving behind those that I loved. And it, it just, I hated them. And he said, what if you never have to go to an airport and leave my, leave me and leave Trayson and Lacey again? What if we go to, together? And I said, well, that's going to, I don't know how that's going to work, like financially and logistically. He said, you don't worry about any of that. You just, is that something you want to do? And I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I still loved skeleton. I still loved the competition. I still felt like I could compete. And he said, okay, I, you don't worry about any of the details. Let me worry about that. And you just, you know, get back into training and, and do your thing. And so that's what we did. Um, I went back, I just turned the, all my thought process into this goal, which was really healthy for me to do, to switch my, my focus and my direction on, cause I just, I just couldn't get pregnant again so soon. I just really couldn't, um, mentally. And so to switch that goal into, okay, now I'm going to go towards the Olympics again. And now all this drive, all this passion, all this, just like everything that was, that I felt like was taken from me, I could put it into this fire and just let it build me up into, um, being something more than I ever thought I could. And it drove me into the next two years of competition where my husband, our two kids and I, we traveled the world in and out of competitions in world cup race after world cup race. And ultimately, um, I, I, I did really well. Um, I, I, I'm not boasting. I'm trying, I'm not boasting. I'm just, I really did. I like I had two fantastic seasons on a sled. Uh, this was really, really extremely special on a sled that my husband designed and built. Uh, he has a background in, in, um, I don't know how to explain it, but he does something called solid works. It's a 3d modeling program on the computer where he worked with steel and my sled is made of steel. And so he designed a sled specifically for me and it won over and over again. Um, it was a great combination to have him off of the track, fixing my sled. I would be on the track. He would be taking care of the kids. They'd be crying and I'd be like, I'll see you in a minute, you know, and, um, just so much fun leading all the way to the 2014 games to that 
to that silver medal. And as I crossed that finish line in Sochi, Russia, all I could say was we did it. We did it. I remember jumping into the stands just to embrace my family and um, reaching out for them. The volunteers were telling me to go over and be interviewed, go be interviewed by NBC and USA Today and Getty Images, go, go be interviewed, get your moment of fame in the photo shoots. And I said, no, 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 I want to be up, up in the stands with my family. I want to be up there um, because that, that was, that's where my heart is, is with my family. And so as I reached out and embraced them and all I could say was we did it, it really was a family event. It was much more than just myself crossing that finish line and, and earning that medal. Yeah. And when you hear this story, for those of you that I would highly encourage everyone to go, I'll link it up in the show notes for you to watch her jump into the stands with her family. But now you hear the whole context and it puts on a whole new lens. And like, I know that moment ended up winning the best Olympic moment for the 2014 Sochi Olympics. And there's a reason why, and man, that is just so incredibly powerful. So thank you so much for sharing all that. And um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out the, what we can do with the, with, the, with the rest of our time here, but um, I would love, cause I can only imagine you spent f- 15, 20, how long were you training for Olympic athletes? It was, yeah, it was- I started so I started and, and one question that I'm sure some of you like that, that you have as a viewer, um, is maybe how I got into this crazy sport of skeleton. Um, and that was through track and field. So I ran track and field in high school and I started doing bobsledding. Um, I grew up here in Utah and there's the Salt Lake games in 2002. My track coach happened to be helping out with, um, the bobsled program. He just happened to be helping out with this bobsled program and was recruiting young athletes to come up and try it. So as a track athlete at the age of 15, I started doing bobsledding and I competed. I switched over to skeleton, uh, when I was about 17 years old and I did skeleton for the next, um, 15 to 16 years, uh, leading into that Olympic moment. Yeah. Okay. So the, the reason why I had asked that is because it's like, you spend 15 years of your life. Like you said, every waking hour, the first section was away from your family. Like just so much that went into that. And it's funny, I don't want to even put this on the same level, but I got married this year and it's hey, like, it, yeah, thank you. thank you. But it's like, it's like you, you spend so much time, energy and effort planning a wedding. And then the day goes by and it's just a blur and everything's so much fun. And then the next day you're like, wow, that's no longer in the future anymore. Yeah. You know, and like, I can, I, like, yeah. I felt that having planned a wedding for, you know, two years, which is longer <laughs> than COVID. I can't even imagine 15 years into something. And then all of a sudden it's something that is no it's longer gone. ahead of you. It's in the past. And so, um, I would love for you to share a little bit about how you manage that with your husband as kind of a team to move forward and make sure that your future was still brighter than your past, even though you were able to make some incredible accomplishments. Yeah. Great question. Great, great insight. Um, you know, as, as an athlete, I had seen, I've seen a lot of my friends, uh, compete, uh, at the highest level. And as you said, we train for years and years and years, and it's our entire focus of our lives. And they get to that ultimate stage and they, many of them, you know, many of them don't end up with an Olympic medal, but they retire due to age or due to injury or, or, or different interests. Um, and then many of them make it onto the podium and win a gold, a silver or bronze, but I've seen it. I had seen it at this point time and time again, where these athletes would end and they didn't know what to do with themselves. Um, they were lost and they'd fall into depression. And, um, sadly, very, very sadly, I've had a a handful of friends actually take their own lives. Olympic Mm -hmm. athletes, like Olympic medalists take their lives. And I'm, I've just been baffled thinking you have, you've reached the pinnacle. Like how could have I helped? Like what, what was missing? Like how, what, what could have, what could have changed things and made things differently? And 
Um, whether it's coming to old age and retiring, um, whatever it is, a new chapter in life always brings, brings this, uh, solemn, you know, state of our lives. And I remember as we got closer to this Olympic moment in 2014, knowing for sure that this was it for me, I had retired in 2010, knowing that I wanted to continue, um, you know, focusing on my family. And I knew for sure in 2014, after having come out of retirement, that this was it. And two weeks before, as we sat there in Sochi, Russia, um, this was just right during the Olympic ceremonies. I, I remember turning to my husband and just thinking, you know, what's next? We had this conversation, what's next? And that's not necessarily a conversation that someone has before this pinnacle moment. You know, it's like, it's like building into Christmas and before Christmas comes saying, okay, what's next? And thinking ahead because you're so, you're anticipating Christmas so much, we're a wedding. But for me, I knew that I needed that. Like I could, I could, I could feel it just around the, you know, on the horizon of just this emptiness of what's next? Like, what am I going to do the day after the Olympics? What am I going to wake up and do? Am I going to wake up and go to the gym because it's habit? Am I going to, uh, just, what am I going to do with my time and with my life? And my husband and I sat there and we talked and we decided to create an, our ultimate bucket list. We wanted to let this be a, a great thing. Um, we didn't want to see retirement as a very sad and solemn, solemn day. We wanted to say this was absolutely incredible. Now what's next? What do we have to look forward to? We want to always look for, we want to carp, you know, carpe diem. We want to seize the day and just continue looking forward and continue moving on and continue growing in our lives. And so we decided to sit down and we wrote out everything and anything that we want to do, to be, to see, to have, to learn, um, whatever skills we want to do. And we wrote this massive list uh, that just keeps growing. We keep adding to it. Even, even today, we're still adding to it and checking things off little by little. But once the Olympic day came and went and that Olympic medal was around my neck, honestly, the, that next month was probably a whirlwind of just going to you know interview to interview to interview. So it kind of slowed down as the months went by. And for a lot of people, I think that would be just like, wow, like they've forgotten about me. And now what do I do? But for us, we actually on our bucket list, one of the things that my husband wanted to do was he wanted to go on for his master's degree. And one of the things on my bucket list was I wanted to learn Spanish. And so one of the, the soonest things we did after the Olympics is we put our house up for sale that we'd lived in for nine years. And we moved to Costa Rica uh, to go learn Spanish. Like, why wouldn't you, you know? And so why not? If not today, then when? Like, there's never going to be a good time. I was 33 weeks pregnant with the twins at that point. Um, and especially after having the struggles that we had had with, with babies, with fertility and things like that, um, a lot of people questioned our decision, but the doctor actually, he was like, we've made it past the point that, that, you know, you're going to be got, you're going to be great. You're going to be just fine. And we flew over to Costa Rica, set up camp and, and lived there for a couple of years, learned Spanish. My husband got his master's degree. And now we're just continuing on learning things like, uh, juggling, like I'd never known how to juggle or, um, learning different words, learning measurements, like conversions, like from Celsius to Fahrenheit, just whatever it is, <laughs> like things that we always wanted to learn. And we're just checking these things off of our list. It doesn't have to be, you know, like swimming with sharks or whatever you think a bucket list might entail. It doesn't have to be that. It just has to be whatever you're passionate about, whatever your interests are, and just do it. Like just today is the day to, to learn something new. Today's the day to grow. Today's the day to look forward with hope for the future. It's a bright future ahead. No matter what chapter in your life you're, you're closing right now, the future is bright. And there's a lot to do in this life, a lot to learn and a lot of things to be grateful for. 
Me alegro que hablas español ahora. Ah, <laughs> But, yeah, chévere. Yeah. Sí, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so awesome. And I love that, like, I've heard, uh, I don't know the, the exact facts on this, but I know that they studied the astronauts that went to the moon and a, a vast majority of them fell into ridiculous depression, alcoholism. And I, I can only imagine that's the same exact thing. And I think that's a quote by Dan Sullivan or Benjamin Hardy, one of those two guys, but it's like, always make your future brighter than your past. I think that's so important. And it's even, it's even bigger challenges in Olympian. Once you get off a stage like that, how, like, how do you keep moving forward? And I think the fact that you traveled and got to do that with your, with your family is so cool. And so many people think like, Oh, I have kids. That's not possible, but why not? And, uh, I, it's, it's, I just, I love this. And you, I, I had another note. I saw another thing you had, you had done recently. I saw this on your Facebook, you, <laughs> you packed a car in 30 minutes and went on a 10 hour drive with your family vacation. So it seems like this is a, a theme of the spontaneity. So that is so cool and love all of that. And, uh, I wanted to, I'm trying to, uh, I, I asked myself, like, as I was figuring out what I want, where I wanted to go next is like, what can I ask Noel that like only Noel might have insights on. Um, and one of the things that I know, uh, happened that was a recently really cool thing in your, in your family is your daughter, Lacey actually ended up getting on a TV show. Um, and the thing that I was really curious about this is that, you know, as a Olympian, I feel like you have a, a balance of, leveraging your accomplishments to help your daughter and your kids, but it's also letting Lacey be Lacey and letting her kind of do her own thing. And so I was curious if you might be able to share some insights on how you've been able to kind of grow your kids or raise your kids with the, the background as an Olympian and encourage them to participate and, and pursue their own dreams. Yeah, for sure. Um, as a parent, you know, we have our own challenges and I think I'm more nervous watching my kids do their activities than I ever was as an Olympian, honestly, because and now I you know like how no your parents control. feel when you were going down the skeleton. Yes. They're like, <laughs> you're like, hey. I'm like, I have no control. I have no, like, I can't do anything. Like I, I can't do anything. I'm just sitting here in the stands and like clapping. What is that doing? You know, um, it's, it's really, it's really tough to be a parent, but, um, man, it's, it's so much fun. It's, it's such a blessing. So our daughter right now, uh, she's 13 years old. We have a son that's 10 and then our twins are six years old and just seeing them grow and, uh, you know, grow and fail and cry and laugh and succeed and all of the above is the greatest joy in my life. It truly is. Um, as for Lacey and, and teaching our kids, one of the things is as parents that we strive to do is just give them every opportunity possible, um, to just see what their talents are, whether it's, you know, I don't, I don't, we don't really care if our kid, you know, if people always ask me, it's actually recently, just like yesterday had somebody say, so are you going to push your kids into doing skeleton? Are you going to like, you know, that's what you do. So is that what you're going to do? And I'm like, actually, no, like <laughs> I would never, like if, if they come and beg me to do it, they'd have to beg me pretty hard for me to be like, all right, fine, let's go up and do it. You know? But, um, we try to just give them every opportunity, whether that's playing an instrument or doing a sport or doing coding or robotics or whatever it might be. Um, right now, our son is is trying out archery, like archery. Like we don't know anything Love about that. archery. Yeah. And then our daughter, um, she loves to play the piano. She started playing piano. Our 13 year old started playing piano when she was about five or six. And then when she was about 10, she's like, actually, I think I want to try violin. And we're like, 
okay, let's try violin. So now she's doing violin and she's like, I want to try pole vault um, in track and field. And I did track and field in college. I competed in, I competed in 10 events. Okay. That's a lot. Right. But I didn't do pole vault. Like the only sport I didn't do is the one that she chooses to do, of course, (laughs) because now I have no say in it and I can't help her with it, but it's probably for the best. But just, I, we truly believe in just allowing our kids um, to try everything and one other thing, one other uh, thing that I think has really helped our, our children to, um, you know, try things out and to excel in, in what they're doing is we celebrate failure. We, we go around and we'll say, how did you make a mistake today? What did you mess up on today? How did you fail today? Um, and we don't do this every day, but we do it. We do it frequently, probably once a week or twice a week or something. And we'll just say, what, what went wrong today? And how are you going to improve that tomorrow? That's pretty awesome. You, you had the courage to try that. Like, oh man, I totally, I totally bombed it on my, on my concert performance. We're like, okay, so what could have you done better? Well, I probably could have practiced a little bit more. Okay, cool. So now, you know, like instead of getting upset at them, instead of yelling at them, instead of being frustrated with them, which don't get me wrong, that makes me sound like a saint, like I don't yell at my kids. I yell at them sometimes. Um, (laughs) Don't get me wrong, but to try and focus on a growth mindset within our home, try and focusing on um, the the effort that they put into something rather than an A or a B or a hundred percent or, or a number or a statistic or points on the scoreboard or goals scored, but focusing more on the effort that they have given uh, that changes everything. Uh, we've seen it within our own lives, but we've also seen it with our kids to be able to say, man, you know, so after, before everything, before like every concert or, or performance they do, we ask them, we'll say, what's your goal for today? What are you hoping to achieve? We know that your coach has a, a slew of goals for his team or whatever, but what is your individual goal for today? And each day they'll come up with their own goal. We do this with our six-year-old. What's your goal for today? Like, what do you want to achieve today in your little, you know, in your soccer game? What's your goal? And um, one of our twins will say, I don't want anybody to score past me. Like, so he likes to like stand next to the goal and the other one likes to score. And we try to keep it away from numbers and statistics. We're like, okay, as long as you're giving your best and we see you running really, really hard, um, we're going to you know, that's, that's all that's, that, that'll be success. But anyway, we focus on what they, what their goal is and then ask them afterwards, how do you feel like you did? Okay. How can you improve? Awesome. High five. Great. You're doing awesome. But um, yeah, I think that's it. That was so cool. And two things I just want to pull out there. One is process versus outcome, you know, focusing on enjoying and loving the process. That is so cool. And I see that is, is at the end that it seems like you're doing there. And then also I think the, the, what we talked about just immediately before I asked this question is like more is caught than taught. They see you trying to juggle. They see you learning how to beatbox. They see you trying to solve a Rubik's cube. And like when they, <laughs> when they see that behavior, they can absolutely model that behavior. So that was cool. I, I watched a little bit of the show just this morning, just so I could see it. And it was, it was cool seeing Lacey teaching her, her uh, fellow competitors, pole vaulting, all that kind of stuff. So Noel, I know we're coming up on time. Do you have time for one more question and then we can start to wrap things up? Yes, let's do okay. it. Cool. All right. So uh, one of the things I thought would a great opportunity to discuss with you is something that you bring up to talk about in your book. And it's, it's kind of under the theme of standing up for what you believe in. And in the 2020 games that we recently saw, or I mean, 2020, however, the, the, the whole COVID thing made things a little bit weird, but there was, there was the whole 
thing that I remember specifically about Norway's women's beach handball. There was that whole thing about like them getting fined for wanting to wear shorts instead of the required bikini bottoms. And there's lots of sexualization, like lots of crazy stuff that happens in the games. And when you're in the limelight that most people don't even get to see. And as somebody that has competed, you have had the opportunity to see some of these things forced on you, but you've decided to kind of leverage your morals, your background, your faith, your decisions to, to steer clear of, uh, of things that maybe not in alignment with what you want to do and stay on your path. So um, I know there's one story you tell in the book about a, a photo shoot and a dress, but there's other things you talk about as well. So I just, I just want to have this conversation about standing up for what you believe in and how you've been able to leverage that to make decisions in your Olympic career. Yeah, my values, my beliefs, um, it's, it's a part of who I am. It is who I am. Um, so there've been times when so as, as an individual, I just, I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke, um, as part of my religious beliefs, I believe in being modest. Um, um, I'm a Christian and a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we believe in dressing modestly and, um, just there's a, there's a slew of things that we believe in. And there, there've been many, many times when my beliefs have been questioned or put on the line, whether it's at a photo shoot and they give me this little red dress that has little spaghetti straps. It's really low cut and it's really high cut from the bottom. And for many, that's okay for, you know, they, everybody has their own decisions and their own beliefs. But for myself, when I went into this photo shoot and they asked me to wear that, I said, I just, I can't wear that. I it's, it's, it's not what I believe in. It's not what I stand for. And, um, I remember this sweet woman. I still distinctly remember her coming up to me and I was afraid. Like I was, I could feel my heart pounding. We got into this massive room and this was in Hollywood. It's a photo shoot right before the Olympic games going into the 2010 games. And I remember walking into this room and seeing this little red dress on a hanger. Um, Cause they asked for our sizes before we went from photo shoot to photo shoot, photo shoot and seeing this little red dress. And I just knew I, I would not feel comfortable wearing that. I just knew it wasn't who I was and what I stood for. And so when I walked in, I knew I had a decision to make. I had this choice to make. I could either just put it on, suck it up and just say, you know, I'm an athlete. This is what we do sometimes. I've just got to do it. Or I could stand up for my beliefs and stand up for what I, I stood for. And it was much, it was harder to make that decision to stand. It would have been easy to just give in, but I would have regretted it. Like I would have regretted it forever. I would have just said, ah, I gave into my own, my own standards. I, I dropped my morals, my standards, my individual standards for that one moment that now I'm sure you could have gone in and Googled and searched forever. And, and that's not what I'd want my daughter to see either. And so, um, and, and I didn't even have a daughter at that point. Oh, she did. I did. She was a year old. Um, but I remember making that decision to just say, I can't wear that. And this woman came up to me, she put her arm around me and she said, I'm a good Christian girl too. I know exactly how you feel. And she went over and she got me like a different dress and it was a really frumpy dress. Like it was nasty. You guys, it was so nasty. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? Like, this is my choice. This is what I'm making. So I put on this like frumpy dress that just was not flattering at all. It was this black, like cotton. I don't know. Anyway. I took this picture and I was just like, you know, from that day, I just knew I was happy because I stood up for my values. And once we know our values, the decisions ahead of us are easier to make because we know what we stand for. And we know that regardless of the questions placed before us, we know that we want this outcome to fall in line with what we believe. And it, and it just, as we know our values, it makes decisions easier in the future in, in every way. So standing up for what, what you believe in is always, always critical. 
Hmm. I love that. I just want to reflect that back at you, Noel. It was just so cool doing this research and seeing how you've lived in alignment with your values. And this just like absolutely beautiful because there's, there's people that say things, but they don't actually stay in alignment with it. But there's another story she tells in the book. And I would highly encourage everybody to check out her book. I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes. But, you know, there was another story you told about like studying for a kinesiology final that was due the next day when you had a competition the next day and you had a a, cla- uh, a teammate of yours saying, hey, like, why wouldn't you just do an open book when it was a closed note test? And then you were basically like, no, I said I was going to do this. And not only did it sounds like you crushed the, the test, but you also <laughs> crushed the competition the next day. So that was cool. I encourage anybody to explore some more of those stories if they can. And another thing I'll just say in summarization, just so that I can kind of share this too, is, um, you know, you were just talking about photo shoots. And there was another story that you talked about how uh, you you did a photo shoot and then you got it back and you didn't even recognize that it was you because of how much photo sh- shopping that they did. So I just thought that was another huge takeaway for me as I went through material. It's like, man, so much of the world that we see is just not even real anymore if it's on a screen. And it was just a, a good reminder that if you're comparing yourself to those standards, that it's not a fair thing to do to yourself, your brain, <laughs> your overall yeah. happiness and all that stuff. So Man, Noel, this has been so much fun. Um, I, I want to ask kind of the, the concluding question that I usually ask. And that is, as somebody that has done all this competition, you have a family, you've traveled. I would love for you to share what your understanding of what happiness means for you today. Oh, what happiness means for me today is knowing my purpose in life and striving every day to live it. That would be my purpose. And um, just knowing who you are and what you stand for and sticking up for your values and knowing that at the end of the day, you can go to bed having given your absolute best and that you are fulfilling the purpose for which you believe that you are here on this earth for that to me, that to me is happiness, true happiness. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, Noel, where can people find out about all the incredible stuff that you've got going on, whatever you want to send them to, would love for you to share that with everyone. Great. Feel free to check out noelpikespace.com. That'd be great. Cool. Simple, simple. Simple. Yeah. And I will, like I said, I will, I'll I'll link up at the show notes. The, if you want to watch the, the, the 2014 USA moment of the year when she jumped in the stands, or if you just want to see what the heck skeleton is like, I'll make sure that that's all linked up in the show notes. Uh, But I just want to have a conversation with you that's listening right now. And if, if this is your very first episode and you saw the title and you wanted to he- hang out with me and Noel today, I'm so glad that you did. This is, it's an honor to have you hanging out with us. And uh, if you're returning, I just want to say how much I appreciate you. You are absolutely what makes this show possible. But whether you are new or returning, I have a favor to ask you. And that is, man, if you've been in start, inspired by Noel's stories today about you know, being on top of the world and then having a bobsled come and hit you at 70 miles an hour and recovering from that and missing a medal by one tenth of a second, can't even blink your eyes that fast and coming back and all this incredible stuff. My life has absolutely been changed by podcasts that have been shared with me. And so I know you have that power today. If you have a friend that you really think could be inspired by Noelle's stories, I know she shared, got vulnerable and shared some stuff with miscarriages that maybe this, this podcast could change someone's life. If somebody that's going through that time, you can hear Noelle's story. So please do, do, do us both a favor and share that with a friend that might need it. But uh, besides that, Noel, this has been so much fun. It's been an honor hanging out with you today and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks so much, Brandon. This has been a blast. Thanks.